This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at WisdomTree, coming to you from my remote summer studio in New Jersey. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stock Strong Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I am a registered representative for Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to WisdomTree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products. And the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. Uh, we're going to have a really interesting show. The hot topic of the year has been energy. And we have an expert on the energy space to go deep with us on what's been happening in oil and the pipeline space. A little bit more on some of the ESG trends and, and how they sort of think about those. Uh, but, Professor, we had an important jobs report. Curious to get your take uh, on what you saw today. Yeah. Okay. Um this jobs report was nowhere near as strong uh, as uh, what I see the media making it out to be. Uh, let me give you the reasons uh, why. First of all, I mean, we, we had a downward revision of 74,000 of the previous two months. Um, um, but but more, secondly, more important than that, uh, the household data. Now, I know it is not surveyed as completely as the payroll data, but there's a lot of people who, in, in some ways, it's, in many ways, it's much more inclusive, showed a decline of 250,000. And in fact, I checked the data, household um, employment, which is, you know, measures people with double jobs and jobs not connected with other firms and everything, is actually lower than it was three months ago. Um, uh, thirdly, and, and this was also very little mentioned in the media. Uh, look at average hourly wages, um, excuse me, average weekly hours worked. And this comes from that payroll survey. It was, re, it was a, uh, revised down last month from 36, 4.6 to 34.5, and also stayed at that level, 34.5. It was expected to be at 34. 4.6. Now, you might think that's not much. Oh, that's one-tenth. The problem of one-tenth of an hour is that's 3%. Uh, we have 150 million people in that survey. 3% is 450,000 uh, workers. So a one-tenth decline in our, our hours is equivalent to a loss of 450,000 workers at the same hours. Um, and in fact, I looked at the historical data and the weekly hours work, which shot up during the pandemic, has fallen all the way back to pre-pandemic levels. So all that gain. So what we're seeing, the raw numbers of workers in payroll look like they're continuing to increase. Hours are going down and going down rapidly. The household survey is going down. Um, I think I, I think this. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I think that everyone. I think the bond market was poised. You know, you can see by its action, a lot of people thought this was going to be a terrible number. When it didn't, uh, all the shorts, uh, you know, covered, and and we got a, row, a rally in yield and a fall in, in the bonds. Um, uh, um, basically, at that particular point. So, um, you know, the bond yield shot up. Now, the stock market, boy, I'm surprised at the action. And, uh, in fact, actually, when yield shot up, uh, markets sold off quite a bit. Well, 1%, went in almost one and a half on the NASDAQ came right back. I, I think the, the, the resiliency on the markets is basically showing that it's pretty sold out. I mean, because, you know, with those yields popping up and the 10-year back well above 3%, that could have been a real big excuse. Um, the, the chart yesterday really also was really good. Not only did we have a, a nice game, but we had really uh, almost 90% upside volume. We may, you know, definitely may have seen the bottom of the stock market. Um, have we seen the bottom of the economy? 
Um, I still think it's extremely weak. Um, uh, let me also say that uh, people are taking um, some solace in the fact that the average hourly wages are three tenths. Now, uh, it was revised uh, up from three tenths to four tenths in the previous month. Year over year is slightly higher, 5.1%, but is decelerating um, uh, a bit. Uh, again, we talked about that being a lagging indicator. Um, and it would be very wrong, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm ta- hoping, that, you know, that, that if the Fed wants to squash wages back down to 2%, 3% increase, you're going to have to take a lot more hikes way above and you know, in, into a, a really falling economy. Uh, the data, you know, the economic data is really not much better than that. Wholesale trade data was way lower than expected. We may get another slight revision downward in the second quarter GDP coming up here. Uh, we're going to get the consumer price index. As we said, that's a backward-looking index um, because housing is going to continue to feed it. But we're going to look at some of the sensitive items that move much more quickly in that CPI and see uh, the number is going to be bad. There's no question about it. That CPI is expected to be up 1.1 and, and, and a cyclical high of 8.8 overall. But, you know, it includes the energy prices, which in June were up and then started coming way down, as we've seen in the last uh, two or three weeks. So, uh, you know, looking at this, we're looking at the sensitive parts. The overall number is not going to be good. Um, but we're going to see whether the sensitive parts are bad. Uh, again, don't squish wages. We need wages to go up. And that's the, listen, another disappointing part of this report, labor market participation, um, which everyone thought was reviving. It's not reviving. It fell back down to 62.2. It's still well under the level pre-pandemic. And you're not going to get people back into that labor force until you pay them wages that compensate them for inflation. They say, oh, you know, you're going to pay me the wages. Otherwise, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing that. So firms are going to have to pay those wages to get the people they want. Um, and uh, in that service sector, you're still going to see some inflation because wages are basically uh, going to rise. In the sense of the commodity sectors, I think we're still going to have a pressure. All this, I mean, again, the market is saying almost 100%, 75 basis points. We'll see what happens at the end of this month with more data coming through. They may do 75 and then really um, say that they've done most, if they see a lot of weakness, they say we're going to get up to where we want to be, front-loading, um, and then move down after that. So, yeah. um, you know, my, my feeling is that uh, um, uh, uh, that this is, a, this is not a real strong report, um, uh, and uh, we're going to get the Fed pivoting Sooner than later, the market looks still pretty. Equity market looks sold out. Very interesting. You see, you seem to see the narrative from the Fed people. You have the St. Louis contingent, Waller and Bullard, still saying seventy-five. I think Waller had had even said we go seventy-five, then fifty, and then we consider twenty-fives for the remaining part of the year. Do you think they need to go even less than what Waller's saying there? Yeah, I, I'm beginning to think that they're really going to go less than forward than Waller is, is basically saying. I mean, right now, you know, let, let, let's let's take a look at the data. I mean, the Fed funds, Fed funds rate right now is well, it's one fifty eight. They go seventy five, it's going to be you know two thirty, and then they go another fifty, it's two eighty. Um, uh, you're you're getting into you know on on a two percent inflation, getting into really you're getting into a really you're going to invert the curve. I think you're going to invert the curve at that point if, if that if this weakness continues. I think they're going to see it. Um, uh, yes, they're acting all very. I mean, this this gives them the green light. I mean, it's not a, a terrible fall off, so it gives them the green light to go 75. The data is still going to look bad on the CPI, um, but I, what I'm hoping is they're going to see that. We're going to see at the end of July, they're going to say, we're doing 75 to get up near where we want. Um, but we really see a cooling. Housing is going to go up in the CPI, but we know the housing market when we're on recorded transactions um, is actually going down right now. So, again, the lags that are built in will look make the official data look bad. 
uh, let's hope that they look to the forward-looking data. Uh, and again, I don't, I don't regard these reports as 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 uh, seemingly as strong as uh, you know they were made out when uh, when the news came out. Well, we know next week is another big report, and uh, the key story for the, the markets have been the Fed. So we look forward to get your views uh, next week, Professor. Thank you very much, and uh, we'll talk again. Thanks. Have a great holiday, a great weekend. Um, we're going to turn the conversation to Rob Thummo, who's a managing director, senior portfolio manager at Tortoise Ecofin. He serves as president of the Tortoise Energy Independence Fund. Rob, welcome to Behind the Markets. Thanks, Jeremy. Good to have good to talk to you. Uh, you know, so energy is certainly the key one of the key stories uh, in energy stocks were sort of the most resilient uh, in, in sort of a, a generally bear market and, and oil it has been a, a key positive uh, until maybe the last few weeks, months. Um, you can say a little, little self here. Give us your top down view. What's been happening in energy generally? How, how are you looking at it now? Yeah. So big, big picture. If you think about what's happened in the energy markets, just fundamentally, the global energy demand for, ener- for, for energy in general, whether it's oil, natural gas, or any other form of energy, is actually back up. It's back up to pre-pandemic levels. Yet the global supply of energy, in particular oil and natural gas, is not and, and has not reached ba- uh, back to pre-pandemic levels a- across the world. And so the result has been declining inventories of, of really key essential commodities like oil and natural gas and, and even coal, and so the net result of that is is typically what you see in the energy sector is when inventories decline, prices rise. And so obviously we've had a significant run in oil prices, a significant uh, increase in natural gas prices, significant increase in coal prices, um, which obviously has led to, to, to inflation. Now, Russia, obviously, and, and the Russian-Ukraine war has, has created some of this. But, but in general, even before that, we were – starting to see declines in in um, drilling activity and the supply across the world, which was ultimately going to result to uh, and, and, and put us into the, the situation of where we are today. Yeah, there's so much uh, discussion now happening. Uh, you, you see, I think, a notable bear who keeps getting trotted out. We even had him on Behind the Markets a few weeks ago is, is Ed Morris from City, who believes a recessionary take brings oil down to i think his latest call is 65 you hear you know the jp morgan upside take in a real russia cutoff you get hundreds of dollars of oil how do you balance that bull bear debate here and and what do you think the key factors looking ahead here yeah no that's a good question you know i and and ed's been doing this in this business a long time so i highly respect his opinion and obviously jp morgan is well well respected institution and and the team there does great job um I i would say so, so a couple things, right? Where I come out on that. Uh, number one, I do think it's important for for everybody to understand. Uh, energy demand globally has increased 28 out of the last 30 years. Uh, so, obviously, in the last three decades, we've had recessions um, in those three decades. Yet, global energy demand has con- continued to rise. You know, the two years that energy demand didn't go up globally were the financial crisis in 2009, and then, of course, COVID um, in, in 2020. But so I guess I'm not as bearish on demand as uh, what, what it is. And, um, but, but I do think it's important that oil prices don't go to $380 or whatever J.P. Perkins' uh, uh, bull case was. I think it's really important that we keep oil prices, let's call it reasonable. And what, what's that number? Well, to me, that's 80, 80 to $100 in the U.S. Because that keeps consumer demand uh, growing keeps keeps cars driving, keeps industries, manufacturing industry, and other other industries really humming. Um, also globally, it does it does the same thing as well. And so, um, I, I guess I don't I never like to be in between, but I do think a, a, like kind of the Goldilocks scenario for oil prices is somewhere in that eighty to a hundred dollar range. It's not quite as wide as is what we were talking about there. Um, so so I think that's where we'll ultimately end up. Um, I think. I, I, I'm probably a little bigger believer, and, and, and anybody who's listened to, to me talk about this historically, is this global underinvestment in, in the supply of commodities is not just something that just all of a sudden popped up. It's been ongoing for 
decades, well, actually for not quite a decade, but let's just say for the last five to, to, to 10 years, and it's finally catching up um, with due to the lack of investment, don't, aren't going to be, the, the, the world is not going to be able to increase supply like, like uh, they have been in the past. And so that's a little bit of a difference uh, uh, than, than what we've seen in the last, you know, two or three decades from an energy perspective. Now, let's say you were, were brought into the White House to advise on policy. You hear Biden, you know, he, he sort of tried to talk down the oil markets on Twitter saying these gas stations are charging too much. We need to sort of bring down prices. They, they did the SPR release. Um, what is your sense? What are the types of policies that uh, that you believe would actually be helpful uh, to try to, to, to be a, a, a more stimulant for for more affordable prices? Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's a very good question, and you know, I, I don't have much hair yet. So I guess if I was named treasurer, secretary of uh, of, of energy, I I'd probably lose the little I have left. But uh, but but obviously, what what an opportunity for, for to 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 really set an energy policy right now is what we have, right? I mean, we've got a, a global energy crisis, right? And and it's not just it's not just here in the U.S. Frankly, in the U.S., we're we're really fortunate uh, because of energy security, right? The, the, the the shale revolution and you, everybody has their opinion on shale but but the reality of the, the shale revolution that that really you know kicked off in 2005 and kind of has extended into now has really positioned the U.S. Uh, in, in a very strong gives the U.S. a strong position in, in energy because we have a lot of energy in, in the U.S. whether it's oil natural gas in particular um, and and so that really kind of sets the stage of what do we do with um, and from my perspective, we need more U.S. and Canadian oil and gas production to help balance these global markets and this globally undersupplied oil and natural gas market. Um, so the U.S. and Canada, collectively North America, can provide energy security not only domestically, but also globally as well. So, for example, uh, we're already doing this, but it can increase. The U.S. can and Canada can increase the uh, natural gas and liquefied natural gas that needs that that effectively Europe needs to to displace or replace Russian natural gas. So, over the next several years, I, I would hope that we would see an encouragement in in the number of liquefied natural gas export facilities in the U.S., which then means you need more uh, natural gas being produced in the U.S. Um, and then on the opposite end, you're going to need. Uh, you know, long-term contracts from from large, you know, Europeans and, and and Asian buyers that are building the infrastructure in Germany, you know, in France, in Italy, in Spain, you know, obviously in China, uh, uh, South Korea, Singapore, Taiwan, every, uh, to import uh, more more uh, clean-burning U.S. natural gas. Natural gas is one of the rare things, one of the rare commodities that obviously provides energy security. But also can be decarbonizing, especially when it replaces coal um, as the key energy supply source. Same thing in oil. Uh, you know, obviously, oil is a, a, a global market. OPEC will will continue to play a role. But what you've seen in OPEC, and this is new, and, uh, and if, if your viewers listen to the energy markets, if they follow it closely, they know this. But if they haven't, most of the time when you think about OPEC, you think, oh, Okay, well, it doesn't matter what OPEC says they're going to produce because they always overproduce uh, what they say, said they were going to produce. And that's been happening as long as I've been following the energy sector, which is about three decades. The last two years, that's changed. OPEC can actually cannot has been unable to meet its production level. So they are actually underproducing their quotas right now. And that's been consistent enough and persistent enough. But I think that's a long-term trend that's going to be difficult. So what do we do? Well, once again, U.S. and Canada can step in increase oil production. There's a lot of resource here in the U.S. and Canada. Export more, and that will help uh, balance the, the markets, bring prices down. And frankly, from my perspective, if you have more oil from sustainable, reliable sources like the U.S. and Canada, that'll just by itself will bring down oil prices because the geopolitical risk premium that's embedded in oil prices right now because of uncertainty of where the oil is going to come from will actually be reduced. And so we can get much more stable prices from that perspective. We're talking with Rob Thummel, who is a senior portfolio manager at Tortoise Ecofin, president of an energy independence fund. So Rob, let's talk about the different types of energy uh, that you guys focus on at Tortoise Ecofin. I mean, there's the traditional 
oil companies, there's pipelines. Talk about how you think about the oil and energy opportunity and uh, where where you see the best opportunities. Yeah, so if you think about energy right now, the energy sector, um, one of the key differentiating uh, uh, fundamental elements, excuse me, of energy is the ability of the energy sector to generate a significant, a massive amount of cash flow and free cash flow. So if, you, if we take this starting off at the, at the highest level, the energy sector and it's, it is generating a significant amount of free cash flow. We estimate the free cash flow yields across the sector to be anywhere from uh, 8 to 9% all the way to almost 20% free cash flow yields, depending on what, what, what area of the energy sector you're looking at. Now, what, what does that mean? Well, relative to the S&P 500 dividend or, or free cash flow yield of about 5%, there's a big spread there. So we, we, we just don't – we think that that spread's way too wide, um, and investors are starting to look for uh, high free cash flow generating companies, and that and they often will hone in on the energy sector when that's the case. The other factor is dividend yields. I mean, I mean obviously, we've got rising rates. Um, but but also, you know, investors just need dividend income. Um, they're going to need dividend income for, for a long time. And, and, if, and investors can find that in the energy sector. You've got dividend yields in the energy sector, um, you know, all the way from six or seven percent, you know, all the way to you know, low, low double digits. And, and once again, relative to the S&P 500 dividend yield of one and a half percent, that, that that can make these sectors uh, pretty attractive. Now, at Tortoise in particular, the the area of the energy sector that we think offers the best risk-adjusted returns for investors um, is energy infrastructure. You mentioned pipe, pipelines, Jeremy, and I think that's a, that's a good example. And so you say, well, why do we like pipelines so much? Well, the reason why we like pipelines so much is simply the, the energy sector is notorious for, for obviously being uh, subject to ebbs and flows of, of cash flow and, and yields and dividend yields based off the commodity price. And that's fine for oil and gas producers. But that is not relevant for oil and gas pipelines. Oil and, gas, oil and gas pipelines and energy infrastructure typically just charge a fee for the product, whether it's oil or natural gas or, or, or other oil-related products, to be transported through the pipeline. And so pipelines are, are often uh, – their cash flows are, are much more stable. The yields, dividend yields, are, are uh, much more secure, um, and, and, and typically the volumes – and higher GDP and higher, pop- higher population growth drive the cash flows and the growth of these companies. And so that's what, what we really like to focus on at Tortoise are the pipeline operators, the energy infrastructure operators that provide stable, consistent, steady cash flow that, that then in turn is returned to shareholders in the form of dividends. Um, and then in, in mo- more recent cases, uh, stock buybacks and, and in some cases, debt reduction as well. How do you think about – so if you were to look at that pipeline index, you guys have a, a tortoise North American pipeline index. How would you say um, you know, the, the valuations are today and think about the total distributions you're getting today, what the distribution growth could look like? Uh, you know, that certainly came under pressure during the pandemic, but like where are they today and in, sort of lo- in, per- in context of their longer-term trends of, of distributions? Yeah, and a couple avenues to that. Um, you know, statistically, uh, the valuations are a couple standard deviations below the historical norms. Uh, you, you know, uh, all, all, said a different way, the, the traditional value. So some people look at dividend yields as, as a way to value some of these stocks. Uh, you know, the dividend yield on the overall sector, just on pipelines in general, is probably around 7% or so. Uh, you know, the, the historical dividend yields probably been around five. So so that spreads pretty wide relative historical norms. Some some investors look at enterprise value EBITDA to value this sector uh, for, for perspective. Historically, pipelines have traded at, let's say, 12 to 13, 13 times uh, enterprise value to EBITDA. Today, they're trading around 10 or 11, in some cases, even lower than that. Um, I, I still think that, that a new metric that will emerge because we are uh, moving forward in the sector will be this free cash flow yield spread. You know, the free cash flow yield of, once again, of just the pipelines is probably around 10 or 11 percent. And, you know, once again, relative to the S&P 500 to five, that, that's just that's just that's just too wide, a, too wide of a spread. And so um, that high free cash flow yield um is is consistent and it's going to be there for a lot longer now and that and, and that's different than what we were, were 
have been in the past that the sector's really not had a lot of high free cash flow yield because the sector had been building out infrastructure. So it didn't have a lot of free cash flow because it was spending a lot of its operating cash flow on building new projects. Well, that infrastructure is now in place. And now the, the energy infrastructure sector and pipelines are poised to benefit from the operating leverage of generating the operating cash flow that continues to grow, but not having to spend the capital. So that means that the, the companies can return that back to shareholders. So that you know, 9 and 10% free cash flow yields and 11% free cash flow yields can be go back to, to, to shareholders. That can be in the form of obviously dividends, but dividend growth. Dividend growth will probably be at least 3 to 5%. It might be even higher than that. And then buy, stock buybacks as well, buying, buying back stock if the market does, can, can, continues to uh, not reward these companies for, for their solid risk reward uh, compelling uh, investment proposition. And, and is that a different uh, – is the buybacks a new feature for these? Like, uh, There's been a, a shift in some of how they were structured from traditional K-1-type things and, and maybe emphasizing income. Is is the buybacks a, a new feature because of the way they, they people are shifting to how they structure these, these companies? Yeah, that's a great observation that you make, Jeremy. So historically, you've had energy infrastructure assets. Uh, operated under different structures, and you mentioned one of them. One, one of them were uh, MLPs or Master Limited Partnerships, um, and the other one was just as a traditional corporation. So originally, as the sector developed, uh, Master Limited Partnerships or MLPs owned a large portion of the energy infrastructure assets. Um, the the reason why is uh, there there is a, was a specific uh, part of the tax code that was written that allowed certain businesses, in this case, energy infrastructure assets, to avoid an entity-level tax. So master limited partnerships are like a traditional limited partnership, if you're familiar with them. They just pass through the earnings to the limited partners. And so um, investors could become an owner in a publicly traded limited partnership. So when you invested in MLP, you owned a unit of a publicly traded limited partnership, not a, not a, not a, uh, not you weren't a, a member of a, a you weren't a shareholder in a in a C corp stock. You got a K one. You got a lot of K ones from from all the states that the the op, that the, the the business operated in for the for the underlying business you were investing in or the stock you were investing in. And and um, some people found found that attractive. Some people found it a nuisance. But the ultimate uh, result was the investor base was was really too small for master limited partnerships really to continue to own all of the assets. So gradually over the last several years, we've seen a migration of energy infrastructure assets uh, that are owned by master limited partnerships now being owned by corporations. A lot of the master limited partnerships that were publicly traded converted to publicly traded corporations, increasing the investor base and making it easier for uh, not only U.S. investors, but also global investors to invest in the energy infrastructure space. And so that's kind of the trend that you've seen. Um, the assets themselves, nothing's changed. But the structures that owned the assets and the way that investors could uh, invest in the assets themselves has changed away from master limited partnerships and towards uh, corporations. Uh, in, in terms of the... The, the the volatility in compared to the underlying oil prices, I, I, they've often been described as like this toll bridge that's collecting a toll and it shouldn't move with the the oil price. Any during certainly during the pandemic that wasn't the case. There's all sorts of unique factors that I think caused that. But do you see that flattening out? Do you see? Uh, do you still think it's elevated volatility for the actual economics of what's going on? Yeah, Jeremy, that has been one of the most frustrating things uh, uh, for for investors. I know for me as a portfolio manager for our company um, to, to, to reconcile because uh, simply put, we've looked and 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 happy to, to, to talk with investors about this and show them the data, the underlying fundamental cash flows of pipeline companies um, in the last decades has been very steady, very consistent, even in the most volatile year, even in 20, uh, uh, 2020, when you know we were in the midst of the, the worst pandemic, obviously, energy demand for a couple months just fell off the face of the earth, um, but, and then rebounded a bit. 
the company cash flows fell, I think, on average by around three and a half to five percent total during the pandemic, during the global pandemic, (laughs) which, you know, the stock prices, as we all know, or or if you didn't follow it, you can go back and look, fell 60 (laughs) percent. At, at one point, and I think ended up being down 40-some percent. There's been this significant disconnect um, that that's caused this volatility. I mean, vice versa, right? The sector's up this year. Well, at one time, it was up over almost, almost 30%. Now we're up, you know, let's say, 11 12%. Well, obviously, energy demand's up, uh, but it's probably up 3 or 4%. So we're playing a little catch-up in the last couple of years. Um, but it's been very frustrating because – Fundamentally, the cash flows of these companies are very stable. They're very consistent, and th- th- they frankly don't change that often. Yet the stock prices are, are, are much more volatile. You know, how, how do we get that to change? Um, the buyback element is, is new to, to the sector, and I think that can help uh, help companies hopefully uh, reduce the volatility. Um, if they've got more free cash flow now that they don't have to reinvest in new projects, uh, they, they can – utilize some of that excess free cash flow to buy back shares at times um and when 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 you're having when they're when the share prices are experiencing volatility for unforeseen reasons and and some of that may be because you know oil prices fall 10 bucks um but that that has no impact on on the fundamental cash flows and in fact some in some cases when commodity prices fall that actually ironically and as most people probably wouldn't envision increases the demand for for energy commodities and when that happens that's usually a positive for pipelines because that's more volumes to be transported through the pipeline well it's a very uh interesting case study of the sort of fundamentals versus stock prices and we talk about an efficient market but you know the original bob schiller behavioral finance was you know prices move way way much more than their underlying dividends and cash flows for stocks you see that in pipelines here with the that I mean, our own model portfolio team that I oversee, our OCIO business, uh, in a way, has used the pipelines as a way to get, uh, and, and in particular the Tortoise uh, Pipeline ETF as a way to get some exposure. Um, you know, we we viewed it as a nice inflation hedge coming into this year. Uh, boy, was that in, in some ways when you think bonds down, stocks down. Uh, certainly, we've been been very happy with those allocations. H- how do you see it as a a longer term inflation hedge? Um, and 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 view of how the economics of the cash flow distributions come to to inflation. Yeah, yeah. I think you know. I I, I think typically energy stocks in general do well in in higher inflation environments and, and rising inflation environments. Yeah. Uh, partially because that usually those some of that inflation is caused by higher commodity prices, and so that means there's more cash flow, um, and, and that cash flow then can be returned to shareholders. Uh, typically. Energy infrastructure investments do pretty well in rising interest rate environments as well, which obviously we're, we're experiencing now with higher inflation. I guess over the last few weeks we've had lower interest rates. But regardless, um, the energy sector is usually a good place to, to be allocated to uh, if, if you're concerned about inflation and, and interest rates. Uh, and, and I think that will, that, that will hold again in this cycle as – We'll continue to see these energy infrastructure companies uh, pay really strong dividends and increase those dividends to, to, that, that will more than offset any increases in, in, in interest rates. Um, and, and, and so I think that will be a positive for investors. And then once again, inflation, uh, you know, higher, higher commodity prices ultimately uh, will incentivize more oil and gas drilling in the U.S. And frankly, whether it's higher, we don't even need higher prices. We just need uh, the emphasis to and, and the importance of energy security, I think, to, to, to be more broadly accepted. And, and as that happens, you'll see more oil and gas production volumes uh, in the U.S. and Canada, which then ultimately means more volumes that, that the pipelines will transport. And, and once again, there's ample amount of uh, pipeline capacity that's available so you won't need a lot of new uh, investment and a lot of capitals being spent by by a lot of these pipelines. So you're going to really investors are really going to see that, that that operational leverage um, over the next several years, which which should lead to some some pretty 
pretty good returns, pretty strong returns in our opinion. We're going to be continuing our conversation with Rob Thummel of, of Tortoise Ecofin. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You're listening to Behind the Markets. And we were just talking about the opportunities in the oil space and in, in, in North American infrastructure. Uh, and Rob, you know, Tortoise, you also have Ecofin, sort of Tortoise Ecofin. I think, you know, there's a lot of discussion about the role of ESG and is ESG creating some of the higher prices that we just talked about in oil, but maybe you could, you know, having been a firm who's investing a lot in energy infrastructure, but also a firm investing in this ecofin element, maybe talk about your firm's efforts here before we get into some, a few specific ideas. Yeah. So no, that's a good question. So, no, towards ecofin, what we think about it, yeah, we, we look at, where we are globally and, and recognize that, you know, obviously decades of rising global greenhouse gas emissions have resulted in climate change. And, and many, some, some are calling this a climate crisis. And so there's an increasing need to find decarbonizing solutions. And so, um, you know, countries around the world have committed to the Paris agreement and they're, you know, aimed to, you know, that's aimed at reaching peaking GHG emissions as soon as possible and, and trying to achieve climate neutrality around the world um, and limit, obviously, warming to, to well below you know, 2 degrees Celsius. So, so at Thornton's Ecofin, um, you know, we see this global decarbonization as a megatrend. Um, but when you look at, you know, how do we, how do, we do it <laughs> and, and, and how do we achieve it? You know, I mean, emissions, if you think about, you know, global energy emissions, you know, they're at 50 billion tons per year. Actually, I think they're even a little higher than that. The population's growing. Um, so, you know, as I was mentioning earlier, you know, global energy demand is probably going to go up because of higher population growth, GDP growth. And so, you know, we've got, you know, emissions coming from, from daily activities such as just heating our homes, driving our cars, you know, just manufacturing things. And so... So there really needs to be an all-of-the-above approach uh, from our perspective to achieving you know, global emission reductions. And so what, what does that include? Well, it includes you know, natural gas displacing coal. Uh, obviously, it includes significant development of, of wind and solar. Um, we're going to need more EVs. Uh, but, but other things, unique things like waste energy and recycling are other areas that, that we see as as ways to uh, effectively accelerate this pace of global decarbonization. So, so what is when you when you talk about this recycling? Let, let's talk about what is what does that mean? What is it? What does it entail? What are these companies doing? Yeah, yeah. No, that's a that's a, you know that's a good question. So, so when we look at what what from from a recycling perspective, you know, a lot of people listening to this. <laughs> might not be as old as I am, but but probably in some shape or form, or re- remember reci- the recycling trend, uh, you know, back in the '50s or the '60s and or the '70s or the '80s. It 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 kind of comes up all the time, and you know, all of us probably have recycling bins, and we're we're trying to do our best to to, to achieve that. Um, when when we think about recycling, um, that's part of it, uh, and and frankly, there are some advanced recycling. Uh, Companies are doing some things really from an advanced recycling perspective that that can help uh, improve uh, recycling plastics. That for, first of all, that that will make a big difference. But when we think about recycling, we think it a little bit broader uh, than that as well. We think about re- renewable fuels in particular, and that's an area that people might not be as familiar with that, that are listening to this. And so when I say renewable fuels, I'm talking about um, Really, really renewable diesel, biodiesel, sustainable jet fuel, renewable natural gas. All these terms are, are, are probably new um, to, to, to some on this, uh, to, to some that are listening. But the most important part of, of all of these terms are, you know, they're, they're really non-fossil fuel alternatives that are replacing traditional fossil fuels. And so that's why they're, they're so exciting to us, um, because there's really an opportunity here to utilize these the, the, these renewable fuels to, to, to really displace a traditional gasoline, tra- tra- traditional jet fuel, traditional diesel. And so you say, well, how do they do that? Well, in a lot of ways, um, what, what these companies are doing is they're recycling existing products like used cooking oil um, to, to create uh, uh, diesel. So let me give you an example. One, one example I always like to use is, you know, McDonald's. We, you know, hopefully, well, some of you may go to McDonald's more often than not. 
some of us may not, some of us may. But anyway, regardless, there's a lot of used cooking oil that comes out of McDonald's every day that they use to cook French fries. Well, um, if you if McDonald's normally McDonald's just gets rid of that used cooking oil and 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 then buys more cooking oil and 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 you know the cycle keeps going. But if you use take the used cooking oil and actually a company like Nesty, which is a company that that, that we're familiar with in, um, in Norway, uses that used cooking oil. To, to create renewable diesel out of it or to create diesel out of it and then basically takes that diesel and uses that to operate the McDonald's trucks that deliver the cooking oil. You've kind of got this, what everybody's been looking for, this closed circular loop of recycling used cooking oil to, uh, uh, you know, time after time and, and effectively reducing carbon emissions by using this used cooking oil to create renewable diesel that displaces traditional diesel that, that's been uh, uh, generated or refined through through gasoline. So anyway, there's there's a big opportunity here. We think that, and, and it's just getting started. And so over the next several years, you're going to see significant growth in, in a lot of these areas. That that's a very interesting example uh, in, in in taking your French fries and turning it into things that can can drive the car. Is is there a similar? What, uh, in you talked about renewable natural gas. Is that an area that what what's the how does that work? Yeah, now this gets, yeah, I, uh, if anybody's eating your lunch, I'm going to give you a warning before I talk about this. So if you're Uh-oh. eating your lunch, take a break. Uh, renewable natural gas is, is unique um, because uh, effectively, so, so, so back up one level. Let me back up one level and say, say this. So, so methane, so one of the things that, so one of the reasons why some people don't like natural gas is because of, of, of the methane component to natural gas. That's a component of natural gas. Um, and reason, the reason why uh, people don't like methane is because it's actually 80 times more potent um, than carbon dioxide. And, and so it's, it's one of the most potent uh, GHG, greenhouse gas emissions, that you can find. So eliminating methane is really, really, really important. And as an energy manager, uh, for the last couple of decades, I am 1,000% behind. Let's figure out the best ways to reduce methane. Uh, so one of the most effective ways right now is where does methane come from? It comes from natural gas, but uh, but 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 you can fix, you can solve that pretty easily. But another area, and one of the m- most significant areas where methane comes from, is uh, waste, and it's waste from and it's waste from animals, basically cows, pigs, chickens, and and so one of the interesting things that's happening is. If you can capture that methane coming from that waste now, rather than releasing it into the environment, if you can capture that methane, um, run it through a process, and ultimately turn that methane into natural gas, and then use that natural gas to fuel cars as a fuel for a car or for a fleet of trucks, um, you actually re- the, the net result of that is negative carbon emissions. So if you think about the math of that, you're taking you're taking a carbon-emitting methane substance that was previously emitted to the air, taking that out of the air, then you're using that actually for as a source for, to generate um, a fuel. So now trucks from UPS or waste management or, or FedEx can utilize natural gas rather than gasoline, diesel, or, or so on and so forth. So, so you're actually using less, creating less emissions um, Significant, significant, significantly less emissions, and you're taking emissions out of the air. So the net result is is actually negative carbon emissions, and so that's that's an area and that, that's that's growing. Um, you know, capturing methane from you know, from waste plants, from from landfills, is an area that's that's really developing. Um, once again, that will help decarbonize and help accelerate the pace of decarbonization. So this is a kind of a unique area that not a lot of people have heard about, um, but it's an area that you're, you're going to start hearing a lot more about because of the significant potential for renewable natural gas to actually generate negative carbon emissions. Really, no industry can say that. There's very few. Renewable natural gas companies can actually say that and prove it. Yeah, and, and, and sort of Tortoise, uh, is, or Tortoise Ecofin is building an index for uh, this recycling and decarbonization. And uh, there's um, when, I, when I look at the characteristics of this index, uh, 
let's see how many total companies. I think there's something like 50 total companies if, or, or, or a little bit less or something around that number. And almost 20% of it is in these renewable natural gas companies. So there's a number of these companies out there. Uh, and is, are, they, are they mostly that waste recycling or, or what are the other characteristics of some of those natural? Those, it's a, that's sort of a very interesting element of this renewable natural gas story here. Yeah. Yeah, so so some of them are so some of them are the large landfills, right? Like uh, the waste, you know, waste management, Republic Services. Some of these companies that you see pick up your your garbage, um, you know, they, they actually uh, are 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 becoming large uh, renewable natural gas uh, providers because they're they're actually capturing this this renewable natural gas from their. Uh, you know, from from their landfills, uh, there there are there are several there are a few small I, w- I don't want to call them startups, but but emerging <laughs> growth companies uh, that are capturing a lot of uh, landfill gas from dairy farms in California and Wisconsin and Texas and you know pig and hog farms in in, in those same you know similar similar regions um, and so uh, yeah there this is this is a growing area. Um, there are a lot of mandates uh, that that are being put in place. You know, certain uh, utilities uh, that provide the natural gas to our homes um, are 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 setting up and establishing requirements that they want. You know, certain percentage, ten percent, five percent, even twenty percent in the future of the natural gas that comes into our home to be sourced from renewable natural gas sources. So. This, and this is just – we're just starting to scratch the surface. If you think in the big picture, you know, renewable natural gas of, of the total natural gas that the U.S. consumes every day is minuscule. It's less than 1%. But if it could grow to – well, it could grow to double-digit percentage of market share at some point. Uh, but you're going to need a lot of these facilities, and, and, and um, they're, they're, there's a lot of them out there that have the potential and a lot of investment that's happening – and so that that that's the opportunity we see to for, for significant growth in this area for, um, for investors to to continue to prosper. Um, the another area that so we talked about some of the renewable waste to energy type type stories a little bit on on some of the traditional recycling. Uh, th- there's another area called carbon capture. How are these companies actually car- capturing carbon emissions? Yeah, that's 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 really new, and um, and that's an area that you know if we're if we're going to accelerate the pace of decarbonization in the U.S., um, you know, carbon capture is going to have to be an area that uh, well, globally too is going. Carbon capture is going to be really important to play an important role globally. Um, so there are lots, there are several different ways to, to capture carbon, and, and uh, we've only found a couple companies that are doing it right now, but fully expect uh, several more. To participate, um, the, the ways that the companies are doing it, there are some companies that are doing it through direct air capture right now. But 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 a lot of companies are developing equipment, developing technologies that attach directly to industrial facilities, um, um, or or even uh, power generation plants, and that allows that carbon to be captured. But but. The, the bigger part of it is you have to have a kind of a complete system. So once you capture that carbon, what do you do with it? Well, you have to transport it. So you have to have the infrastructure in place to be able to, to uh, obviously move that carbon. And then the question is, well, what do you do with it from there? You have to sequester it and you have to, um, and what that means is you have to put it underground and, and, and keep it from, you know, obviously having any negative environmental impacts. And so, one of the great things is some of these old oil and gas fields are great places to, to, to put this carbon because you've got this old, you know, uh, you know, thousands of miles below the ground or even hundreds of miles below the ground. Actually, you've got this old the shale rock that, that you can actually uh, capture the carbon from an industrial plant on the Gulf Coast, put it in a pipeline that's already uh, or that's already in existence. And then feed it into these old oil and gas reserves that that aren't producing anymore and they're depleted, and that allows you to capture this carbon and keep it and sequester it, and it never comes back. And and that has a huge impact on on reducing CO two emissions and, and helping uh, the world um, and the U S. particular meet clim- meet their climate goals, get get closer to this you know this Paris Agreement that that, that everybody I think feels is is really important and, and wants to achieve. So, and we have about three or four minutes left in our show. Um, as you as you think about, I want to come back to this high level, interesting 
view from you know Tortoise being an energy manager. A lot of the energy managers sort of rail on ESG investors saying, hey, this ESG trend is what's creating the shift away from the, the supply we needed. And that's what's driving up prices. And I want to come back to that. How do you see this overall ESG trend moving over time? Do you see it? You know, certainly we see it a lot in Europe uh, as a very dominating discussion. Uh, you could say that's part of what has their conundrum of, of not having energy uh, relying on Russia. Uh, do you see it coming to the U.S.? Do you see a different audience? Uh, give me any sort of further comments on the high level yeah. ESG from energy. Yeah, yeah, no. Yeah, no, Jeremy. I think it's so. So, so Tardis Ecofin. The way we look at it is is broader in that um, you know the, I, I think the the terms whether it's ESG or, or sustainability or, or or decarbonization. I mean, I, I think all of that's important. But but I think the way we look at a big picture is is you know I think all of us recognize that globally uh, emissions need to decline. Decarbonization is here to stay. It's uh, it, it's a mega trend. It's not going away. And uh, the best way to accomplish that is through an all of the above approach. And so uh, if we really want to tackle th- this global decarbonization problem, um, I-, I think the answer is you've got to look at everything and, and, and accomplish it through all, all means. So like, a, so, so that means, more natural gas, because, you know, you've got we've got a global problem with India and China using way too much coal. We've got to get rid of coal. That's the one that's the one area where where I think collectively across. Well, where we would say is probably one thing that needs to just basically go away. If we can get rid of coal fired emissions, that would be outstanding. Replacing it with natural gas, replacing it with solar, replacing it with wind is, is really, really critical there and, and can reduce emissions. It's worked in the U.S. It can work in other areas around the world that are actually growing emissions now, whereas the U.S. and Europe are actually declining in emissions. So we view that as really important, and 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 then you know from there you're going to need things more than more beyond just solar and wind and and, and natural gas. You're going to need you're going to need uh, uh, renewable fuels. You're 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 going to need hydrogen down the road. You're going to need carbon capture. All of these things can accelerate the pace of decarbonization and and, and once again help the world achieve the goals that that, that we're trying to accomplish. Well, Rob, this was a, a fantastic conversation. This has been such a key story for what on the markets. And I find your firm in particular very interesting to talk to on this particular topic of energy and the decarbonization trends, given your role in each of them. We're working with you, as I said, in the model portfolio business using you know, one of your ETFs on, on the infrastructure and, and licensing that index that you just talked about on decarbonization. I think that's a very interesting novel approach. Uh, just uh, thanks again for coming on the show. Thanks to our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. This is our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.